Welcome to the Writers Institute podcast. I'm your host, Paul Grondahl, director of the New York State Writers Institute at the University of Albany. We're very excited about our guest today, uh, Edward Berenson, who is a professor at NYU, a cultural historian of uh, French uh, history, but also his new book is a fascinating tale. It's called The Accusation, Blood Libel in an American Town. It takes place in Messina, New York, in the North Country, and he's here for our Researching New York Conference. Welcome to Albany, Ed. It's a pleasure to be here. So we'd like to start out kind of the early impulses of, of the authors that, that come here to the Writers' Institute were you a, a house of readers and, and book people, and did you write early on, or did you have your mindset on a different career as a kid? We really weren't particularly a book family. I remember my, my parents, when I was born, bought a whole set of the Collier's Encyclopedia, thinking that they'd have the whole world at their at their fingertips <laughs> and of course by the time I was able to read it it was totally out of date right <laughs> and so they, they really they bought this whole set which must have cost them a fortune because they didn't have a lot of money and then they would get things like Reader's Digest condensed books so those are the books that I remember seeing around I the house those too yeah <laughs> yeah that's what they yeah. had no you know, any younger person has no idea what that what that is right but uh, but that's really so there were books but but not a lot I mean my father was a sports guy and so that's what I really grew up with is just being a fanatical sports fan which I still am what kind of work did your parents do uh, my father was a dentist and my mother got married when she was 19 and so she actually went to college in her 50s but wow. she she got married pretty much right out of high school and in those days my very traditional orthodox jewish grandfather didn't think that girls should go to college hmm. girls should get married right which is what my mother did right so you're growing up uh and you grew up mostly in the philadelphia right area, you right, said? right 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 does a kid aspire to be a historian, or, or what other things? Were you going to be an athlete? What, what were your dreams as a young boy? I, 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 had, I wanted to be a journalist mm-hmm. pretty early on, and then my family wanted me to be a lawyer, you know, because a Jewish boy should be a <laughs> professional guy, you know, and I just was never interested in that. And so I got interested in writing when I was in when I was in high school, and journalism seemed like a good career. And then I went to college right in the middle of the Vietnam War, and so that was what everybody was talking about all the time. And no one really understood why we were fighting this war. And so at some point, it, I just realized, and it was probably because I had professors who were oriented that way, that you really couldn't understand that unless you knew the history. And so then I, that's how I got into French stuff, because the French, of course, were there first in right. Vietnam fighting. And so that just was a revelation huh. that you couldn't understand the world around you unless you knew what happened before then. And so I just decided I had to do more of that. Did you write for newspapers, either your college paper or, or municipal newspapers after school? or? You know, I didn't. I took a, I took a number of journalism courses. So I went I went to Princeton, and they hired a guy who had been the editor of the St. Louis uh, the St. Louis Post Dispatch mm-hmm. to come and run their journalism program. And that guy taught me to write. I mean, he was amazing. Like I'm not remembering his name right now, but he would do a weekly seminar. We'd have to we'd have to write a piece every week, and then he would just cover it with a blizzard of red ink. <laughs> this was before track changes right. and all that sort of stuff, right? <laughs> 
And it was just an inspiration. I was actually the only student in that course who was not writing for the Daily Princetonian. I wish, I don't know, it just somehow it didn't occur to me to write for the student newspaper. And I was doing sports in it probably because I didn't, have, I didn't have that much time. But it was just a spectacular opportunity to get to work with this guy who had been an editor at a major newspaper. That's a great newspaper, too. It's a, it's a, Louis, it's yeah. a great historically important newspaper, yeah. and I learned so much from him. And then also from the other students in the, in the course because they were more experienced writers than I. And we, right. So we, we read each other's work. And that's how I got into writing. So who were you reading? Were you reading, you know, journalists or reading historians or reading novelists in your college? Really, all, all of the above. So I, I really got into American literature, reading Faulkner and Hemingway and Fitzgerald. I, I got into that pretty early in, in college. And then I started reading histories of Vietnam War and foreign policy and diplomacy and that, and, and that kind of thing. And then I just had some spectacular historians for teachers. Uh, Karl Shorsky, who was uh, this great historian of, of Vienna and a beautiful writer. And, and so he was an inspiration. And Martin Duberman, who was... Mm-hmm. Uh, also one, one of my one of my teachers and so he had just I think when I was when I was t- I took a course from him and he was just writing his book about Black Mountain wow. and so he was also a wonderful writer and and so I was I was I was lucky to have people like that to inspire me to show me what good writing looked like I think the the best authors and certainly historians merge the Research, you know, you have to be a great digger and a great researcher, but you also have to learn to write with elegance and write well, which is hard. What did journalism teach you in in that whole process? Well, just that. So to try to write things in a way that would be clear and as simple as possible rather than as complicated as possible. And there's, there are too many academic writers who think that, that it's not good if it isn't complicated. And in fact, the really hard thing to do, and this is what Carl Shorsky taught me, is to take really complex things and make them simple. Mm-hmm. And I, I could never aspire to be as great as, as Carl Shorsky was at that, but, but it, that really struck me as what you have to do. And that's hard. That's really hard. So that's what I aspire to. And, and being a professor, it's always a two-way street. I've done some teaching. I've never been full-time. But you learn a lot from your students. Oh, What's yeah. it like seeing student writing and, and critiquing it? And, and how does that affect your own writing? So that's, that, that, that's really good. And so my, my wife is a writer, and at one point she got into, she has a good friend who's a linguist, and so they really got into the structure of sentences and things that, that I was doing but not consciously. And so, for, for example, having the most important point in a sentence at the end, and mm-hmm. then the next sentence Passive repeats. Voice, maybe that's an well, or just end focus is what yeah. they call it. Yeah. And then the next, the the first part of the next sentence refers back to the main point that just preceded it. Right. And so there's a whole all, all kinds of techniques for cohesion, mm-hmm. for making writing flow, for doing transitions, which students never learn, they never do, right. and there are actually a whole bunch of simple principles that most writers know implicitly, but they actually don't know explicitly in a lot right. of cases. And so. So my wife got into that. I learned a lot from that. And that's really helped me both with my own writing, but also really with, with my students, with right. teaching the writing. And so I work a lot. 
my, I'm, sometimes I'm afraid I'm insulting my students because I'll, now it's track changes, but there'll right. be all this red all over their, their things, but they actually end up appreciating it. Right. So tell me about your wife. What's her name? What does she write? Ka What's Catherine your... Johnson. So she wrote two books with Temple Grandin, who, oh, yeah. you know, yeah, and they were both New York Times bestsellers. Right, right. And, and so we have two, two of our three boys have autism. And so it was through the world of autism that Catherine got to know Temple. And at one point, they, I guess they both had agents at William Morris, and so their agents connected them. And so Catherine was just the perfect person to, to write a book with Temple. And Temple's an incredibly brilliant person, right. but she, it was going to be really hard for her to write a book that was going to be accessible to readers. And right. what, what Catherine did basically is to figure out how to speak in Temple's voice. For, yeah. the, for those two books yeah. about animals. And yeah. so they're, they're really quite successful. That's great. So do you two edit each other's work? Is she your first reader or vice versa? And how is it with a spouse when you're yeah. both writers, which I've come across several yeah. times. It can be probably a, a bit of uh, landmines out there when you're editing each other. Or... Yeah, we do that less now. <laughs> so we've been ma married for like 35 years, right. you know. And so early on, this is, it was more... Catherine editing my stuff because okay. she was the more accomplished writer right. and it, at some point I don't know it just didn't seem to be quite necessary we were really always always busy right. and didn't necessarily have time to edit each other's work right. And but then I have a, re, a pretty recent project. This was a textbook, a history of Europe since 1500 that Catherine wrote a pedagogical part for and it's all about expository writing and so it uses the sentences from the book or ideas from the, the book to teach students about writing and so we worked together on that on that project right and that was fun so your your interest in the vietnam war led to your your deep scholarship of of france and french culture but what was your experience in the vietnam war did you have a high draft number i did have a deferment I, yeah so i had a number 15, mm -hmm. and I, just as a kind of lark, applied to be a conscientious objector, thinking, well, at the very least, I could delay things. Right. And I just got the idea, maybe it was my parents' idea, of bringing our rabbi, who was a very conservative guy, who was a supporter of the Vietnam War, a supporter of Nixon, and I thought, I'm going to bring him to my draft board interview. Right. And he was wonderful. He said, well, I don't agree with this guy. You know, he's this young college student. He's got all these crazy ideas, but I think he's sincere. And that convinced them. Wow. That convinced them to wow. give me the conscience objector status. And so I worked in, in Trenton, New Jersey. That means you had to give service. Right? Yeah, right. So I had to do two years of alternative service. Okay. And, I, and I worked in, in what was then an anti-poverty, you know, part of the, the, Lyndon, the legacy of Lyndon Johnson's anti-poverty programs. And right. so there, there was a program in, in Trenton, New Jersey, which I, I, I worked in for my alternative service. Wow. So... Never turned back from your interest in France and its long, complicated history. Huh? That, that was really the seed. Yeah, well, I think I was first going to do U.S. history, okay. and then partly was the Vietnam War, and partly that because of the 60s and all that, I got interested in revolutions, and, and so France has a revolution about every 10 minutes. <laughs> and, and so it just seemed to me then, I don't believe this anymore, but it seemed to me then that it was a more interesting and more colorful 
wonderful, a more tumultuous history than American history. And you I had re- to do research trips to Paris. And then that. I, I mean, uh, it was really tough. I had to live in Paris for two years <laughs> when I was writing my dissertation. I know, I, you know it's a really hard work, but somebody has to do it. But then after a while, I decided to branch out. And so I did a book that was on the French and the British Empire. And then I did a book on the history of the Statue of Liberty, which makes sense for someone who's interested in France. But then it got me into U.S. history. And I think that turned me toward this most recent book, you know, since I got into U.S. history doing the Statue of Liberty thing. And so this story of the accusation had always been in the back of my mind, has been in my family. And I think that's probably what sort of set me up to do this book. So are you trilingual? I assume... You can read Hebrew, I, I don't know, or English and French? It's or, or, really French and German. And some. German too, yeah. I used to know some Hebrew, but right. I have to admit that I haven't kept up with that. Okay. So original sources in French history, you have to be competent. Oh, yeah, French, yeah. Right? No, I have I've very good French, so yeah. I, can, I can speak French fluently. How did you, did you learn that? Study it all along the way or just no, self-taught? Yeah. So I always took took German in high school and college and then I had a girlfriend in college who was a French major and she said well I want to spend some time in France so I went along to it never having taken a single course in in French or anything and so I signed up for different courses when when we were in in Paris and when you're there and back when I first started going to France nobody there spoke English it's different now and so you had to learn it and so I did in my in my 20s and it's a lot harder to learn it's a foreign language in your 20s but partly just being there and wanting to participate in things and then I found myself I'd be getting into a political argument with somebody and I forgot <laughs> that I couldn't speak French you know and somehow something came out you know and, and, and how awesome to get this award from President Jacques Chirac and I, I don't have French and things but it's a chivalry de so, yeah, so it's a knight of the uh, order of merit <laughs> nice. you know and so, so, the, so we call you knight Ed now yeah something? right so it's a little <laughs> That doesn't quite that's, translate that's into beautiful. into American, but it was a real it was a real honor. And the uh, the ambassador gave me you know he actually pinned the award oh, wow. on me. And I so thought you'd wear your medal up here at yeah, Albany. Yeah, you know? yeah, well, you know. <laughs> so uh, where do you keep your medal? I keep, I have a tuxedo. <laughs> Which I only aware, seems like I only aware to some occasions that involve something French, and right. so it's there's a little sort of it's like a lapel pin, right? That only French people recognize, Beautiful. and so it just sits on this tuxedo, which I wear like once a year or once every nice. two years or something, and so that's where it is. So I'm not going to lose it, right? So let's talk about the accusation, blood libel in American town. Just came out in September and it's been reviewed, and all the major publications been getting great attention. This is really a, a personal story in yeah. a way. Your, your grandfather came from MIT, you know, uh, to the Alcoa aluminum plant, and this involves this horrific anti-Semitic slander slur that goes back to medieval Europe. Right? Can you set up the story and and, and how did you decide to make this a book? How did you want it? Something you had sort of heard about, but didn't yeah, know much about. I, I heard about this in my family growing up. And even though we moved away when I was two or three years old, we went back every summer because my grandparents and other family members were there. So I stayed connect, connected to the town. And 
at some point, I didn't really know exactly why, and maybe it was because we were starting to hear about more anti-Semitic incidents in, in Europe and other places that I decided to tell this story. And so it involved going back to Messina for the first time in about 40 years. And one of my cousins who did grow up, grew up there, the first time I went back there, she went with me and she introduced me to all, all kinds of people. And I was right. able to do interviews and I found el- elderly people who had memories of this, oh, really? of this story. Yeah, I, I, I interviewed a woman who was 102 years old when I talked to her, and she was 16 when this happened. Mm-hmm. And she told me that the Jews of Messina thought there was going to be a pogrom. Yeah. Because they were from places where there were pogroms. That's why they came to the U.S. to get right. away from that. Right. So it's a four-year-old girl. She goes out. She goes missing in the woods. And what is a blood libel? Explain it in simplest terms. Blood libel is the medieval accusation that Jews need to kill a Christian child and drain the child's blood to use in religious rituals. And when you think about it, it's one of the ugliest forms of anti-Semitism that you can imagine, because right. it basically says that Jews must be torturers, right. and that their religion requires it. Right. And, of course, it's pure myth. Right. No one has ever seen a Jew do anything like this, right. but it's a myth that took hold, and it just persisted. The first known case is from the 1100s, and there have been hundreds of these accusations over the years in Europe going all the way up to the present, sadly. And there, there was very violent reactions, right? I mean, there were, there were cases of pogroms oh, or, yeah. or murders against the Jews. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a typical thing that, that happened is that a child would turn up dead or go missing. The Jews were accused of this horrendous crime. And then there were attacks against the Jewish population of a town. Many were killed, the property destroyed. And eventually Jews who were accused of these, of these ritual murders were put on, on trial. But they were, they were trials where people were tortured into confessions the famous case of 1475. And so what you would have is that the judges would have a narrative of what they thought happened in mind, and they would torture the accused Jews until they they told the story the way the judges wanted to hear it. Mm-hmm. And suddenly they say, see, the yeah. Jews confessed. And this, this story in particular, the, the case of 1475, took place in Trent, which is now in Italy. It became a kind of icon of the Catholic Church. The, the little boy who was supposedly murdered by the Jews became a saint, Saint Simon, and there are frescoes and paintings and sculptures of Saint Simon on all kinds of churches in, in Italy and other parts of Europe. And it wasn't until the 1960s that after the Vatican II that the Pope said the Catholics not, must not believe this myth. Right. But it, it took until then for the, for the church to definitively forbid this, this belief, to say it was false and Catholics should not promulgate right. it. So you lay out all the confluence of events in Messina. Number one, they had this aluminum smelting plant that needed right. a huge labor force. They brought in immigrants recruited right at Ellis Island. And then you've got a resurgence after birth of a nation of the Ku Klux Klan, which was had strong roots in upstate New yeah. York, so Messina. How did that come together in Messina? And at least the residents didn't seem to take it to the stage of, of extreme violence. No. Why did those forces 
collecting machine yeah, guns. So, so that's a great diffuse, you know. That's a great question, and that was the mystery I wanted to try to solve because there was no history of this terrible accusation in the United States. The United States had been, relatively speaking, a wonderful place for Jews, where there was there was discrimination, but nothing like what European Jews knew. And so that was the mystery. Why did this thing surface and why in Messina? And so it seemed to me that it was the, the confluence of four or five different things. And so it was the recruitment of immigrants at Ellis Island to work in the Alcoa plant because Messina was a rural place. You didn't have a labor force, an industrial labor force. And many of the people who were recruited to work in Alcoa were from the parts of Europe where the blood libel was common in the late 19th and early 20th century. There was a huge revival of these accusations. There was a lot of anti-Semitism in, in Europe, late 19th century Dreyfus affair and, yeah. and, and, and all that. The other source of immigrants is Quebec. Mm-hmm where there had been a lot of really bad anti-Semitic incidents in the early 20th century. And then the border between Canada and the U.S. was meaningless. You could just walk across the border, go to work, and then walk across the border to go home. So I think in those two immigrant groups, the revival of the Klan, which had 4 million members in the middle of the 1920s and became a mainstream organization. And they were, in the 20s, more hostile to Catholics than even to African Americans. And Al Smith, who figures in this, was Albany. He was our governor. He spent many years here, first Catholic, going for the presidency. He faced his own kind of ethnic backlash and slurs and anti-Catholic. And so that's that's the other thing, right. is that this incident took place right in the middle of the presidential election in 1928, right. and Al Smith was the object of just horrible right. slurs. And right. it turns out that two of his main advisors were Jews. Right. Bill Moskowitz, a, a really yeah. remarkable woman, was one of his main advisors. And so some of the anti-Catholic slurs then rubbed off into anti-Jewish ones, too. Yeah. It also reflects the current political divide and hatred. I I could see it happening in, you know, 2019 as much as 1928. There was an incident on campus. I don't know if you heard about it. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. Just our first snowfall the other day. Swastika in the snow. Yeah. Yeah. So there, and and F F Israel, I think is what it said. So it was apparently believed it was a a young woman, a, a Muslim student, and you know, we are a very diverse campus, right. and, and the week before we had a, a difficult conversation uh, from African American students. An African American student was arrested by white police officers, and so anyway, there's there's all these fissures and fractions factions just below the surface on right. this campus and across America. So, what do you think your book says for today's political climate and, and divide? And, so I, I, I think that we're living in a, in a fraught political climate where a lot of people are on edge, and it's kind of a—I I wouldn't say it's a dire situation, but it's, it's a dangerous situation, or it's one that requires vigilance. And it's partly because we now have forms of media that can circulate some of the worst— forms of hatred really easily. And one of the reasons I think that this incident broke out in Messina in 1928 is because Henry Ford published an anti-Semitic newspaper for for almost a decade in the 1920s. It's the only explicitly anti-Semitic newspaper in American history. Unfortunately, now, 
we have forms of media, electronic media, that circulate hatreds of African Americans, hatred of Muslims, and hatred of Jews, and it's something to be concerned about. And what also concerns me is that we don't have public authorities at the highest levels who make very clear that this kind of thing is unacceptable. Right. And what was terrible about the Messina incident is that it was pushed by the public authorities, by the mayor of the town and one of the top police officials. If they hadn't pushed us, if they had done the opposite, if, if they had said, forget it, this rumor is just that, then it would, nothing would have happened. Right. And so I wish we had better leadership at the national level on subjects like this, on, on hatred, which... Everyone kind of dances around. You're talking about President Trump. Yeah. I mean, he's yeah. inciting a lot of it, if you follow his Twitter thread. Either he's inciting it or he doesn't do enough to disassociate himself from it or to tell his followers that he doesn't want their support if that's the kind of beliefs they're going to have. And that's what I think, to me, that's the, the biggest criticism I would have of, of President Trump is that he needs to tell people who, who, who support him that he doesn't support them if they have these kinds of beliefs. Yeah. Do you see any evidence of him doing that or no. wanting to do that? No, I don't. No. I don't, sadly. Right. Sadly. And, and this really violates American traditions. I mean, one of the really great things about this country is that, that we have political leaders who have worked very hard to oppose this kind of thing. So after 9-11, remember, President George W. Bush made it clear that, that Americans should not direct hatred against our Muslim fellow citizens. And even though there was a form of Islamic terror, which was hideous, that the president made clear that we shouldn't generalize this against all people who are Muslims. And we don't have that now. Right. And that, that's a, it's a big loss. Right. It's a big, big, big loss. How is Messina doing? I, I, I mentioned I have not been there. I've been around it. Obviously, the Alcoa plant is gone, and a lot of North Country towns are struggling. It's a rust belt. I mean, it's really sad. I mean, Messina was a thriving industrial town, Alcoa and a GM plant, and there were a number of other factories. It was a, it was a really prosperous place. And GM closed in, I think, the late 80s. And Alcoa, it's still open, has a couple hundred workers, but only because it gets subsidies from the state of New York. You know, there's not much going on there. And so basically what keeps the economy in Messina alive is, is health care mm -hmm. and government. There's no industry anymore. A little tourism? I'm sure they're trying to position Yeah, not or, much. I mean, yeah. the Seaway for a while attracted some tourism, right. but it's the, the town, unfortunately. You know, you walk down Main Street and half the stores are closed, and even the shopping centers that opened up on the outskirts are not doing very well, and so there, there really, unfortunately, isn't very much to draw people there. Right. And even though the river is beautiful and there's Barnhart Island in the middle of St. Lawrence, which has a beautiful beach, and it's also phenomenal to go to the locks and watch the, watch the right. big ships going it's, up and down. It's a marvel, and its property values are probably very affordable. Really affordable. So right. I met a number of people who've retired. And, you know, they lived in Boston, Washington, New York, and so on. And they bought a house in Messina and also in Florida. Uh -huh. And so they spend the summer in Messina where the climate is very, very pleasant. Right. And then they spend the winter in Florida. And they can afford to do that because the real estate right. is so inexpensive in Messina. Nice. 
So maybe a future home of snowbirds. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe. I mean, there, there's a it's a it's a it's a really pleasant, congenial place in, in a lot of ways. It's just sad. It's one of those American towns that used to be a thriving industrial center and it no longer is. Hmm. So the book is The Accusation, Blood Libel in an American Town, published by W.W. Norton. Ed Berenson, thanks for coming to Albany. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, me, yeah, me too. Thanks. And we look forward to uh, your, your presentation tonight and your participation in the Researching New York Conference. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. So this is Paul Grandall. Uh, come back next time and see uh, what future guests we have in the New York State Writers Institute broad- podcast. Thank you. We tell ourselves stories in order to live.